the leak of a draft Supreme Court opinion. The Supreme Court. The court that dark money built. Breaking news at the Supreme Court. The landmark Roe v. Wade case. A woman's constitutional right to an abortion. My body, my choice. And Leonard Leo, who really is responsible for helping Trump fill the Supreme Court. A Supreme Court decision with dramatic consequences. The justices ruling five to four. You look at the decisions like Shelby County that attacks voting rights, and then you look at the dark money cases like Citizens United. It's not just us. The court is not in order. This is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, and welcome to Making the Case. Joining me today is perhaps the most determined fact finder in the case-making enterprise, Lisa Graves. She is the executive director of True North Research, and she serves as president of the board of the Center for Media and Democracy. And she has uh, done time in the Senate Judiciary Committee working for my beloved chairman, Pat Leahy, when he was chairman there. Lisa, welcome. It's good to have you here. You're a close observer of the court. Let's start by talking about its recent adoption of a so-called code of ethics, just in terms of substantively what they've claimed to lash themselves to. Do you see any improvement over the existing code of judicial conduct? Well, thank you so much, Senator, for having me on. It's a joy to be here with you and um, maybe not a joy, actually, to talk about this so-called code of conduct that Chief Justice John Roberts announced because it's unlike any other code of conduct in the country. It does not have the same binding language that other U.S. judges are bound by under the code of conduct, and it even suggests that they might, in essence, consider themselves to follow the Government Ethics Act from 1978, even though each and every one of those justices has each year signed those documents under penalty of perjury, in essence, as well as under potential civil or criminal penalty for failure to report gifts. So I think it's a case of too little, too late. And also, it seemed uh, the timing seemed suspicious to me. Time just as the Judiciary Committee was about to consider subpoenas. And so yeah. I think it was another political act by this very political court. Well, one thing I'll take a little bit of pleasure in that it was a first real chink in the armor of the court's indifference to public concern about its ethics problem. And of course, even if they got it right with the code, there's a problem that they don't accept complaints about violations of the code anywhere. They don't have anybody to sort through complaints and sort the wheat from the chaff. They don't have anybody to like a staff attorney, to research the merits of a complaint, and they don't have any fact-finding to compare the facts right. Right. with the code itself and make an independent determination as to whether the justice complied with the code or not. When you have none of those things, that seems to leave a pretty big hole. It really does, but I. But you're right. It is a chink in the armor. It is a blink. Uh, they blinked, in essence, by issuing that code, and yet they try to wiggle out of any real efforts to make it enforceable. As you point out, there's no fact-finding component, no way for the public to make a complaint, no way for a complaint to be tracked by the public or the press or the Senate to determine the outcome. And we know from the hearing you held earlier this year in the subcommittee that the last time one of these issues involving Clarence Thomas was brought to the judicial conference about a Supreme Court justice, basically the can was kicked down the road and no action was really taken. There's no demonstrable evidence that anything happened 
to address the evidence that was shown at that time about Clarence Thomas and his failure to comply with the code. And so um, it's good that the court seems like it has to respond to some of the public concerns that have been raised and your tremendous efforts to shine a light on this enormous crisis. And yet the code that the justices announced does not have any teeth. Yeah, it's a little bit like saying, uh, okay, we agreed to abide by the rules of baseball, but this whole business of umpires we don't accept. (laughs) We're going to call our own balls and strikes, and we're going to call whether we're safe on base. Right. Let's dive a little bit into the previous episode when Harlan Crow gave a round of yacht and jet travel gifts to Justice Thomas. That was sent to the Judicial Conference for examination. One thing that's interesting about that is that nobody objected to it being sent to the Judicial Conference for examination. So the notion that the Supreme Court justices are answerable to no one has been belied by their own conduct in that matter. And where that gets interesting is that the second round of Harlan Crow to Justice Thomas gifts is now back before the Judicial Conference again. And it may well be that in the circumstances that exist at the court, they might be a little fed up that after they accommodated the Supreme Court by not calling out Thomas the first round, he went right back to this mischief and they have to go through it again. And if they do their jobs, as I think they should, they end up sending the question of willfulness in the failure to disclose to the attorney general. Right. So that could get pretty interesting if you've got some real investigative clout looking into these things, people with grand juries and subpoenas and so forth. Yeah, that's exactly right. And on on both those points, I concur. And I do think that the appropriate step for the Judicial Conference would be to refer this matter to the Justice Department for investigation with the tools that the Justice Department has at its disposal, but which the Judicial Conference does not, does not have any real mechanisms that we know of that would allow them to investigate these matters or make a ruling. And in fact, under the government ethics um, rules dating back to 1978, the natural outcome, the right outcome would be for them to make a referral to the Justice Department and not leave it in-house, in my view. And that's a matter of law that has been on the books in statute for decades now. Yes, that's right. That's 40 years of legal precedent. And in fact, these murmurings, in essence, by Chief Justice Roberts, along with the sort of gamesmanship that Alito was playing with the Wall Street Journal and David Rivkin to try to present some sort of alternative reality, this idea that these justices are not bound by a code of government ethics that applies to every single officer in the federal government, in all three branches, that somehow they're above that. It's really um, arrogant and astonishing. And it comes at a time as that the court is actually engaged in other arrogance in which they are displacing the precedents that have been on the books for years, legal precedents. And they've also been trying to, in my view, limit Congress's role. It's Congress's power. And so um, we have a very arrogant court being led by Chief Justice Roberts, in my view. You mentioned David Rivkin. Just to bring reviewers up to speed, he is the lawyer for Leonard Leo, who is actively obstructing and resisting our efforts to look into gifts that Leonard Leo orchestrated for Sam Alito. Right. So the idea that Alito would offer an opinion that we have no right to this information violates all sorts of ethical precepts all by itself. It was a very peculiar little chapter in this saga. 
right? It's like a, an advisory opinion, but aired on the pages of the Wall Street Journal editorial page in which uh, the suggestion is that David Rivkin is a journalist when he's anything but an impartial journalist. He's, in fact, a lawyer, as you point out, in this very controversy. With an actual legal obligation to zealous advocacy for his then client yep. and current client. Yep. So the idea that Alito can suddenly say, no, he was just being a journalist and not a lawyer when he actually was the lawyer right. for Leonard Leo, it shows how off kilter right. some of this has gotten. So we're trying to figure out to both backstop the case we want to make for the Supreme Court ethics bill to get a f better understanding of what took place. And we voted in the Judiciary Committee to authorize subpoenas for a number of folks in this gifts program for certain justices. Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo were two of them. Give us a word on Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo and how they fit into the ethics crisis, the gifts program part of the ethics crisis at the court. Well, I think it's so important that the Judiciary Committee voted to approve those subpoenas to Harlan Crow and Leonard Leo. It's important for the public to know more, to have actual documents uh, that show what happened, because we know that we have an incomplete picture, even though the investigative reporting by ProPublica, by Politico, by the New York Times, by the Washington Post has revealed details. It's incomplete because they don't have the type of power that the Senate has to demand documents, documents that would show details of the payments of the gifts and that sort of thing. And so what we do know is that Harlan Crow has uh, basically funded and subsidized the luxury lifestyle of Clarence Thomas by providing him free trips on his mega yacht, on his super jet, regular stays at his resort home. We know that Harlan Crow has funded luxury travel to New Zealand and Greece. We have the ProPublica story revealed the shirts that Thomas was wearing on his RV, which is another story involving another uh, very wealthy person in terms of gifts to Clarence Thomas. Big but gifts, not... <laughs> too. That one, I think, yeah. was $267,000 in loan principle that Thomas has never had to pay back and that the individual has ceased attempting to collect. That's right. I mean, so these these amounts are not small amounts. The amounts in the gifts, the cumulative amount of, of the gifts is substantial. And we also know from Politico's reporting that Harlan Crow staked Jenny Thomas, Clarence Thomas's spouse, in her political organization, her C4 group, that she was creating as the Citizens United decision was being considered by the court. It came down as a five to four decision with Clarence Thomas casting the deciding vote, even though on New Year's Eve, just a few weeks before that decision was issued, she filed expedited forms to get that nonprofit, that organization up and running, Liberty Central. Was she paid by it? She was paid by it. Harlan Crow gave her organization $500,000. She received around $100,000 for her own salary as a result of that. And then when she left that organization, we know also from the Washington Post that what happened next was that Leonard Leo secretly arranged for Jenny Thomas to be paid by Kellyanne Conway through Judicial Education Project. I know it sounds like a bit of alphabet soup, but the bottom line is you had Leonard Leo, who has played an instrumental role in deciding who gets nominated to this court and other courts, secretly arranging for the pay for a sitting justice on the U.S. Supreme Court as that justice is considering enormously important spouse, cases. Yeah, yeah it's, it's unbelievable. And so I just think it's, it's vitally important. The last thing I'll say, which I think didn't come up because of other factors at the committee hearing, but the fact is, is that every single Republican member of that Senate Judicial Committee has received funds for their own political campaigns from Harlan Crow or from Leonard Leo. And so, so they were protecting yeah. their own so funders. So let's get into that because I don't know if you saw the shenanigans 
at the Judiciary Committee hearing when we voted out the subpoenas, but the Republicans filed 177 amendments. You know, there's a point where you're filing 177 amendments that it becomes hard to say that any one of them is actually sincere right. or serious. <laughs> right, right. And then they pulled every procedural trick they could to deny quorum, to close the two-hour rule, to run out of the room. Right. Why would you suppose Republican senators would engage in such extreme parliamentary behavior to try to head off these subpoenas? Partly you answered the question that <laughs> they're receiving money from the subjects. Right. You know, the, the amounts vary by senator. But the fact is, is that between Leo and Crow, every one of those members has received funding for their campaigns from the very subjects of these subpoenas. And they felt no shame or concern about that conflict, in essence. Instead, they were determined to defend them at any cost through any procedure. And as, as you point out, 170 sort of amendments, it was just an astounding effort to filibuster by process. Uh, the Senate's role. And at the heart of it is one of the biggest corruption scandals in U.S. history to have judges who are supposed to be impartial and above the law, above any sort of suggestion of impropriety uh, or bias, to have this cascade of tremendous reports showing that Clarence Thomas has basically used his public office for private gain, to, to feather his nest. And Leonard Leo has helped facilitate some of that, and Harlan Crow has been a major benefactor. For these senators to not be willing to stand up for the Constitution, for the integrity of the court, and instead to engage in that sort of gamesmanship just was a real low moment, I think, in American history to have them willing to try to stop a legitimate investigation by this Senate. And the contributions to those individual senators from Crow and Leo are very likely dwarfed by enormous contributions made by Leo and his billionaires to the dark money Republican operation, to Mitch McConnell's super PACs, for instance. I strongly suspect that as time goes by and investigation continues, we'll find that the people who are behind this are big, 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 big donors to Senate Republicans, not just individually, but in the post-Citizens United dark money apparatus that they can stand up. That's right. The figures that I was mentioning or this, the summary I was mentioning is based just on the FEC disclosures of direct campaign contributions. That does not include any donations that are going to C3 or C4 organizations that may be involved in uh, either, quote, issue advocacy or otherwise spending dark money around elections. And we know that Harlan Crow has been in this game for decades now. He helped fund the group that operated as Swift Boat Veterans for Truth in attacking John Kerry's record in 2004. Harlan Crow was one of the funders, stakeholders of that way back then. And so these are powerful individuals. Leo has been involved in the Supreme Court effort to try to use his post at the Federal Society to handpick judges that are supposedly um, somehow Federal Society judges without any uh, process at the Federal Society for approving who he chooses, just his own personal assessment in essence of his own litmus test. Um, and so you have individuals who are, who are very powerful and who these Republican members are determined to defend no matter what. Politico just published an article on the linkage of Leonard Leo and the billionaires to various network amicus briefing efforts in major cases, showing that in some cases more than half of the briefs submitted in favor of the position that the Supreme Court ended up taking, the right-wing position, 
were connected to Leo and his apparatus. As you know, I've been writing briefs to the court about this and giving speeches about this, The what I call the front group flotillas, the phony front group flotillas that are sent in. Reaction to that? Well, that's right. I mean, you have called out this scheme uh, going back years now and including during the Amy Coney Barrett hearings. But the new report by Politico adds new data to the story that you've been telling through these illustrations of this network between Leo spending uh, time and money to get people appointed to the court, uh, spending time and money then to get cases to the court, amicus briefs to the court. It's a racket. It's a scheme. And in fact, what the Politico story documented was that in seven recent cases by the U.S. Supreme Court, groups tied to Leonard Leo were in the majority of the briefs to that, those courts. And those cases involve vital rights for the American people. So this isn't, isn't just an abstract ethics issue. This is an issue in which you have someone playing uh, a, a very powerful role, a potent role in determining the direction of our law and limiting our rights. And he has an agenda to limit our rights, including in reproductive rights and more. It reflects kind of a con job on the court, on the other parties, and on the public when there's this pretense that a whole variety of separate groups are all independently clamoring for an outcome when, in fact, they're like keys on a piano that are being played by the sort of offstage piano player putting right. them uh, in front of the court. Right. So if you go back through all of this, I guess this is a point that I'd like to close with. We've touched on, I think, all of these pieces already. You begin with the Federalist Society so-called list of Supreme Court nominees that Trump agreed to, whole separate story, and what the deal was with the Koch brothers or whomever that uh, got that done. And you look at the Federalist Society list, and you find the fingerprints of Leonard Leo and the billionaires. Then when they come in to the Senate and they're nominated by Trump, you see these ad campaigns against Garland and for Gorsuch and then Kavanaugh and then Barrett. And those are all funded with anonymous dark money. But again, the fingerprints all over it of Leonard Leo and the billionaires and his judicial crisis network. Then we get the amicus flotillas report that I've written about and that Politico documented. Then you've got the gifts program, right? which is, again, whether it's Alito or Thomas, uh, Leonard Leo's fingerprints are all over it. He's on the trips with right. Alito. He's in the picture with Thomas at right. the Crow Resort. And then you've got outcomes coming out of the court at the end of the day that are precisely what Leonard Leo – sounds like a really bad rock band, Leonard Leo and the <laughs> creepy right-wing billionaires. At the end of this, of this multi-stage effort – with identifying the judges, campaigning to get them on, feeding them instructions through this amicus program, and then rewarding them with uh, gifts, and then they produce the outcomes on command. It's sort of like having a stable of trained horses that will do what you want, and you just take very good care of them. It is so disturbing, and the, and the way you've described it is exactly right in terms of the way this scheme, this program is working, and it's working uh, exactly as Leonard Leo wishes it to work in terms of getting the results, the changes in the law that he wants. And as the political story pointed out, uh, some of those changes are based on factually inaccurate descriptions of, of reality, basically. Yeah. And some of these cases are also being manufactured to bring to the court. They're not even real cases or controversies. But this court is choosing 100 percent of its docket, basically. It takes only um, 60 to 70 cases for oral argument a year. Uh, almost none of them are mandatory uh, cases. These are cases that they are handpicking in order to change our rights. Um, and they're doing so at the behest of Leonard Leo and his billionaire benefactors, the 
creepy billionaires. And so it, it's an enormous crisis. And the, the work of laying that out, of, of making that case is not done. That's why those subpoenas are so important, because we need to learn more, understand more, and really have an opportunity to counter this. But there is um, tremendously important legislation that you've drafted and that other members have sponsored, like the amicus bill and more, that attempt to begin to put some guardrails on that are utterly missing. So to pull off a scheme like this, what do you think the investment has been in years and in dollars to set this all up? Hmm. Well, we've calculated before the gift was discovered of Barry Side's $1.6 billion gift to Leonard Leo in the form of Marvel Freedom Trust, we had calculated that more than $600 million had been accumulated and spent by Leo's network from 2014 forward. But that doesn't include the amount of money that he spent or directed back in 2005, 2006, around the confirmation of John Roberts and Samuel Leto. And those figures also don't include how much money was really pouring through these different vehicles over the last few years, either to try to block Katanji Brown-Jackson unsuccessfully or to mount these campaigns against the Biden nominees. And so there's more money that's being spent. Certainly $600 million is a conservative and low figure based on uh, not having the full span of time and not having disclosure. Best guess, decades and billions. I would say definitely, definitely decades, definitely more than a billion dollars. And that is a heavy signal of motive. Yeah. That this isn't just some charitable enterprise at work that They want to capture this court, and they were willing to put enormous resources into getting it done. They want to return on investment. This is a – they have an object. The object is to change the law, change our rights, and um, they're not doing it just like someone would donate to a hospital or the Red Cross. This is not about that. This is about changing our laws. Yeah. Well, nobody's better than you at digging through all of this mess. Thank you so much for – the outstanding work that uh, you have done. Thank you for joining me on Making the Case. Thank you, Senator. It's an honor to be on the show and a joy to be with you. And I look forward to more revelations to come. I'm sure there will be.